Waddy Krug, Waddy Tarleton. Good morning, mate. How are you doing? Yes, I'm amazing. We have a uh, special guest with us this we morning. We do. We decided that everyone's probably sick of listening to us, mate, talking over the last uh, six months or so. So we've decided to bring people into our fold to at least try and get some people to listen to us. Yeah. And I promise we didn't take a four-week vacation because it took us four weeks to coordinate this whole thing. Certainly did this not happen at all. But uh, without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Christian. Christian Volk. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. It's all very formal of you. Oh, very well, good. You know, yeah. we're kicking it off formally today. Yeah, we on are. Tuesday morning. Oh, yeah. So we're changing it up a little bit. So um, you know, once a week now, we're going to bring in um, some special guests to have a conversation with us and join us and collaborate. And so we're not just sick of hearing our personal hearing our dulcet tones in the morning. So Christian joins us from um, uh, Cisco Meraki, a leading. Tech vendor, we all know who they are, so if you don't, well, what are you doing in, in this industry? Go have it, go have a Google. Um, Christian, you've just gotten back from California, not too sleep deprived, I hope. No, absolutely not, fully recovered. I've actually been back two days, so feeling semi-alive. What did you do in California? Well, interesting question, Dom. So I actually officiated my first wedding. So I acted Ooh. as the celebrant for my best friend and her now husband in Santa Cruz, California. It was an amazing experience. A new one for me it was the first time acting as a minister, I suppose. I am ordained after all. So <laughs> and, and can you just, just step us through the vigorous process of, of becoming ordained as a celebrant? Well, I mean, because it's really... quite, is quite, it's about a six month course in Australia. I heard. Let's just preface this with that. But obviously you did it from when you were in the States. Listen, it was also really intense. Um, it took me about... 15 minutes, oh. really grueling 15 minutes though. There was a lot of reading involved and then a, a series of questions. The questions were pretty straightforward though. You know, you just can't marry inanimate objects or uh, animals. I think there might've been something about like children against their wills. I'm not really sure. It was pretty straightforward things that I hope uh, have made sense to most people taking the test. But yeah, I just took the test online. I even got an official card Oof. and uh, a semi-prescription pad of marriage certificates. It's awesome. Really? Yeah, they're not the official legal kind. Like I still have to go through the actual so court just process just for that. <laughs> oh, it's kind of ornamental, right? They're gilded. They're quite pretty. Wow. I felt really special, but no, it was all about the bride awesome. and groom, and I was happy to be involved. But. It's kind of uh, like an addiction now. I just want to do weddings all the time. You start to do like improvised weddings on the street. If somebody 100%. looks really happy, they're walking down the street, arm in arm. I mean, guys. how are you guys feeling right now? We could do a wedding if you want. Well, <laughs> look, could. You know, it's legal. Let's do it. <laughs> Although I am already married, so there'd have yeah, to be that whole process. And in terms of pressure felt, like in terms of then and now today's experience, can you, can you give us a little bit of light as to which one you're feeling more pressure for? I mean, not to discredit the podcast, because I'm super excited to be here, obviously, but I felt a lot of pressure for marrying yeah, my best friend. Well, yeah, I had all of my friends and my family were there in attendance as well. But most importantly, I know the bride and groom so well. I spent so much time with them. They're so important to me. I wanted to make sure that I could reflect that level of affection in what I was saying, and then also honor them and their journey. So it's a lot of pressure, you know, you want to do it right. It's their big day, they're going to remember forever, so. Absolutely. Um, just look, just talking about journey, um, it's, a, it's probably a good segue into one of the topics that we wanted to cover off with you today. So look, women in IT is, 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 is an up and coming thing. It's not necessarily the norm any, um, at the moment. Um, so we just wanted to, you know, drill down a little bit and find out a little bit more about your journey. So could you just walk us and our audience through around you know, you and your emergence into IT. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I did not take the conventional path. Uh, anyone who knows me would probably say I'm not super conventional in general. So it only makes sense. Um, after I graduated university, I actually thought I was going to go into law. So I was working at a legal office, translating legal documents from French as I'm a dual citizen. Found that it was absolutely not what I wanted to do. I hated being cooped up into an office. And so it being San Francisco, I naturally found a startup that also overlapped with a big passion of mine, which is wine. So right. I've been involved in wine for many years, taken my first level uh, kind of sommelier evaluations, which were tougher than university. Sorry, my college <laughs> professors are probably going to be upset that I said that. Um, but I was working at that startup for a couple of years, and it was a really interesting business model. It was a software platform, but it was really meant to manage wine collections like a stock portfolio or as a commodity. I love this idea. I think it's, I think it's fantastic, and it's Thank you. so it different so to you know what you would expect as somebody that was involved in sales from a standard alcohol side, right? You think of them from the account management side, but it's not really that side, right? It's more of the, the um, we're talking before about relating it back to an equivalent of the ASX, for example. Yeah, well, that's it exactly. I found it was such a cool intersection. I love wine. I was able to talk about wine all day. I love sales just because I love spending time with people, and that was a huge component of my job. But also just the software platform and the idea of looking at wine from a financial perspective instead of just something you would go to a store and buy and forget about, right? Just talking about long-term value and investment. So it was really interesting. I loved it a lot but I found that I was more passionate about the software and the platform that we were using. And I love wine and it's still a big passion of mine, much to my own detriment, honestly. <laughs> but uh, I got really excited and then I actually met some of the uh, crew from Cisco Meraki just through friends of friends and actually using Meraki myself and got recruited in. And it's just kind of been an uphill, in a good way, journey since then. I, can't imagine having taken a different path. So how did you end up in Australia then, if you started off in San Francisco? Well, that is an interesting one because if you would have asked me three years ago, would I be sitting in a cafe in Melbourne? Absolutely not, I would have laughed. I'd been like, Australia, are you crazy? No way, man. Yeah. I had always, of course, known about Australia, I heard good things about it, but I never even considered working here. It wasn't on my radar. And it was just through growth at Meraki. Um, I was an inside sales rep covering Canada, actually. Loved going to Canada. It was an amazing role. I felt like I learned so much and grew so much and was ready to take the next step. And in just speaking with all of our leaders and going through the interview process, uh, Australia was brought up because it's such a, a great area for Meraki right now in terms of growth. It mirrored a lot of my experience uh, in Canada. And they kind of asked me once I interviewed what I consider the role and probably it was a little nuts. They thought I was crazy for sure. On the spot, I said, yeah, why not? You know, it sounds like an awesome adventure. I hadn't had the opportunity to travel this part of the world at all. Um, my family's from Europe as well as the US. So I've gone back and forth there and saw that as being an easy transition. But uh, I think it's important to challenge yourself also. There are so many things that we do only because it's comfortable. And even sometimes a risk is a comfortable risk. It's really hard to push yourself outside of your comfort zone alone also. So I thought it was a good test for me and it really has been. I'm moving here without knowing a single person, never having visited, just showing up at the airport with my four suitcases, not even really knowing if I was qualified for my role, to be honest. <laughs> I'm like, man, I tricked them into hiring me. They sent me to Australia. <laughs> just bluffed your way through it the whole way. Yeah, totally. There's a, there's a yeah. quote by the guys from Atlassian. It's like, um, we had no idea, you know, they're just two blokes, the Alaskan guys. No idea what we were doing, but we just 
faked it all <laughs> the way until we started to make it. The way you do it, right? Well, that's it. And you're always going to go through hurdles and have obstacles. I was super lucky coming here to meet mentors right away. Like you guys know several members of my team. I have an amazing manager. I was able to gain a support system instantly with them and learn. My first year was so hard professionally and personally, right? Like professionally speaking, it was a big jump because I had been a, a pretty top performer. I was used to doing well and of course putting in the work but receiving the benefits back and coming into a new country, building a new territory and figuring out what was up from down honestly was a, a trial in itself. And that coupled with the personal side of it, right? You go from having a big network and everybody that you know being within a few hours to somewhere where you're more than a day away in the time zone. And if something did happen, you know, you're two days away from being able to go home yeah. or have somebody come. So it was a big journey, but so important for me and very happy I did it. And then there was the whole uh, shock to the system about moving into an apartment that didn't include furniture. Oh my gosh, okay, so it was less Because that's, that's a thing in the States, yeah? <laughs> well, furnished apartments are, but I was used to having to get my own furnish furnishings, but not appliances. That was the craziest wow, thing. Wow, we really started to get into federal problems, have Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. So. <laughs> I feel kind of ridiculous being so shocked now in hindsight. But when I went and toured my apartment, right, you see the fridge, you see the washing yeah. machine, you see all this fancy stuff. And I'm like, yes, this is the apartment for me. Sign me up. Moved in there. I walk in and I saw that there's this big hole in the wall where the fridge used to be. What's going on? Where's my well, fridge? Yeah, I called the landlord and I said, don't be alarmed. But you guys have just been robbed. Like, something is. I happened. just love this picture of you like walking in for the first time with all of your groceries for your new house, freaking out, and then calling a landlord. The landlord going, "What?" I think they were concerned that they had just let their apartment yeah, yeah. out to an idiot because I couldn't she signed already? Oh, and the worst is so in the washer and dryer, right? I'd have been accustomed to using a shared system in the building where you put in quarters yeah. or coins and you're able to do your washing, but that's not the case. We have a shared laundry room. I completely misinterpreted this term. I thought that all of the machines in there were shared for the building. I didn't see the little labels above them, like one, two, three, indicating they belong to the people in that unit. Right. So for my first couple of weeks, I'm like, this is awesome. I've got state-of-the-art washing machines. I'm just dumping laundry here and there. And I actually got busted by a big group of my neighbors. I was walking out of the laundry machine, machine room with a whole basket, and they come down and they're like, you know that those don't belong to you. It was really awkward. What do you say? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to pay you for your water? Like, this is a very, very weird, but learning experiences. Good ones. <laughs> big, big, big learning experiences. Let's go back. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> slightly sidetracked, but I love it. Yeah. Let's go back to women in IT. Just, I want to spend a bit of time on it because Absolutely. it's, it's a challenging issue. I mean, in Telco, we have two females in our team of 45. Mm -hmm. Not from want to try. But what do you think um, enterprises can do just to, to drive? Certainly, let's let's stick it from a sales perspective. But you know, driving and encouraging females to to apply for those roles, let alone encouraging enterprises to hire them as well, which is which is another piece as well. Definitely, and that's a great question. It's a topic I'm really passionate about. I'm actually involved in a Women of Meraki group here in Asia Pacific that's really dedicated to making Meraki the best place to work, regardless of gender or cultural ethnicity. Uh, so we've thought about this a lot and. It's complicated because there is no 
silver bullet, right? There's no one thing that a company can do and overnight start to attract female talent. I think a lot of it comes down to culture because there is a big perception that historically tech has been male driven and a lot of women have come through the years with horror stories or you know, not having enjoyed their time in the workplace, but that's changing. I think that a lot of companies are making really proactive efforts to make their culture more friendly to everyone and then also, I guess, accepting of people that have families and have other circumstances that might cause their working schedule to be a little bit different. So I think a great example, you know, of course I'm a bit biased naturally, but what our company has done is making working together more of a family and a community feel versus coming in as a number. Because we all know that just biologically, I think we're all as humans drawn to something that makes us feel involved or linked in a more friend or relationship way versus coming in and feeling like you're punching a number. So I think the more that we align culture into community and global acceptance, the more women will want to come into these roles. Also, big part of it, I think, is advertising the success of females that are currently in the company, right? I think it's so inspiring when you go on LinkedIn or you know, BuzzFeed, or obviously I get my news from really reliable sources, <laughs> but you know, wherever it may be, and you see a story of a female of any age, any you know, ethnicity, who's been able to succeed or come up through the ranks, it does give you that feeling like, oh, I can do that too. Do you think there's a there's another piece around? I think I think culture is really really important, and I, I don't think you find anyone that doesn't agree with you is that's being a really big driver to getting women into IT. But what about the industry in general from a really young age? Do you think there should be? You know, do, do you think that IT is still looked at as a a, a bloke kind of or a guy kind of hobby that that starts from an early age? That you know there needs to be a more uh, it's not very glamorous, right? Uh, yeah, a more, uh, I guess, enticing piece to open it to everybody. Do you think that there's a piece there from an early age that, that takes effect on women getting involved later on? Absolutely. I mean, especially when I was growing up, if we all think about our classes when we were, you know, teenage, teenage years, there were majority females in the literature, history, kind of language classes, whereas men tended to be in the science and math classes or STEM-associated skills. I think that that's changed a lot already just by nature of how our society is developing, right? Tech isn't everything. So when you go to a school today, just to get by in the basic curriculum, you have to know how to work applications and go through different devices. So I think that more and more women are given opportunities to be exposed to that. But I agree because if you don't have STEM, STEM skills from an early age, it's nearly impossible to, to feel that you're qualified to go into that role. And that's another thing, it's proven that women often look at different job postings and if they don't match every single yes. line of qualification, uh, they don't apply. Yes. Whereas a guy will go, oh, I get 70% of the way there, I, I can, can, I can bluff the 30%. Yeah, correct. So if they don't have that background in science or math and they think that, oh man, that's the most important thing in this job posting, right. they might not apply. But that's not necessarily the case. You can learn on the job. It's just more about having the courage to go sure. the next step. But completely agree, and I think that schools in general are focusing a lot more on, on pushing those skills. So when you came into the industry, you obviously came into the industry from, well, basically a law background and then a, I don't know what we call your wine background, but a, a, <laughs> a, a wine, a, a, salesy, a salesy, but non-IT background, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and you, successful in getting in there, which was great. Did you, were you lucky enough to find in, in Cali um, initial female mentors to, to assist there or did you do it all did you pave the way in in your own right there 
you're able to find some, some people for direction? That's a good question, actually. So within Meraki, when I first started, I didn't really have a female mentor just because I don't think it worked out the way my team was aligned for me to meet that person. But I did have a female mentor from a previous role who wasn't involved in IT at all, but she really instilled in me that I needed to just go no matter what, ask questions and kind of not take shit from anybody. Even if I didn't know the answer, I was smart enough to learn and get by on my own grit. So I think I took that with me going into Meraki and then I met mentors across the board immediately. I could, I can't say enough about that community and how willing everyone was to help me. But when I first started, I will admit to you, I got into my lab day at Meraki. I'm looking at this equipment sitting on a table in front of me and I'm like, what the hell is a switch? Yeah. What are they talking about? I don't know what this thing does. And it was, uh, it was humbling, you know, because I felt so excited to do this job. I knew I could do it, but I had no idea what I was talking about. So I really had to learn and ask people for help and go back to the basics. And I think that's something that as we get older, uh, regardless of gender, we're afraid to do. We're it's afraid a pride to issue, look, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is a pride issue. You don't want to look simple or like you're not the best person for the role or the strongest person in the room. But you can often identify not only new ways of learning, but in sales, new ways of closing the deal if you go back to basics and really lay all the cards out on the table. So that's really what I did, and then leveraging mentors in different areas. So I think that that's something that's really important for females especially. I talk about this all the time. Is when you go into an organization, you're in sales, for example, don't just look for leaders within sales. Look for leaders within operations or product management. Across the board, you're going to find people that are going to be able to add things to your own portfolio and help you advance personally and professionally. So in terms of advancing personally and professionally, where are you getting, like what's, what's motivating you? What's your North Star? What are you striving for? What do you, what do you want to leave as a legacy? It's a good question. I think that's something that all of us wrestle with all the time, right? It's what's your purpose in life? And we've all talked about this quite a bit, but for me, initially, of course, when I'm growing up, I'm like, oh, I want to make a ton of money, right? And even in <laughs> university, when you're so broke, you're eating ramen noodles every day, all you can think about is making a ton of money. And you know, obviously, that's great. We're all in sales, we love closing deals. But for me, I really want to drive purpose out of what I'm doing on a in a professional way. Uh, because at the end of the day, you spend so much of your time at work, if it's not giving you back something that you feel proud, proud of, you're gonna waste your life, right? And I don't want to wake up when I'm 50 and look back at you know, the past 25 years I've worked in IT and be like, oh man, I closed a bunch of deals, but what did I really do? So that's something that I've incorporated in my own legacy. And just examples of that is finding ways for Cisco Meraki to engage in the community and work with maybe some entities that do great things but don't have the budget to bring in great technology. And by helping them and finding ways to, to change the way that they do business and help the community even more, it makes me feel really good. And that's the kind of stuff I want people to remember me for, definitely. So you want to look back in 10 years time and be like, oh, I was the you know, the saleswoman that worked on that account that you know got a really good deal for the customer that then supported this drive or this initiative that helps you know feed kids or whatever it might be. Yeah, kind of. I mean, not even as a salesperson, right? I hope that they look back and they enjoyed working with me. They thought of me as a good friend because at the end of the day, we should all look at each other with courtesy and respect. And I think that the best kind of professional relationships are those that you do respect them as a friend, and that. I helped, I did something good. Because I don't just want to be a deal closer. I mean, that's great, don't get me wrong, especially if my manager listens to this. I love closing deals. 
I love it. I love it a lot. That's all I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I do. But, uh, you know, I want to have made a difference. And to me, that's solving people's problems in a way that makes them happy at the end of the day and feel like you gave a little bit also. Nice. So let's, let's shift back to, to tech, right? So you've made this big jump from this industry that's got nothing to do with tech, but it has a slight, you know, supported by this SaaS kind of piece. What do you think got your initial attention? You know, what was it? It was four years ago. You've been yep. in Morocco four years now, so yep. it was four years ago before you made that jump. So what did you what did you think that first got you interested in that in that Meraki? So or, for me it was the fast pace of change. I always throughout my academic career and even working inside jobs as I've worked since I was like 14, I always like things that were constantly evolving and challenging because I find that my attention span probably isn't the longest. <laughs> definitely, I, definitely yeah. in sales. <laughs> yeah. I really like things that force me to learn constantly and get me excited. And with Meraki, that rate of change and that evolution was unparalleled. There was no other company that I could find in the market that was doing the same types of things. And for me, the same, the same type of revolutionary things, right? Because that's what's gonna change. Like hardware is always gonna be hardware. Tech is always gonna be tech. It's always gonna exist. But what problems is it really solving and what's different about it? And that got me really excited. So I figured if I can learn how networking works, great, like I can figure it out. But if I can learn how to leverage that information and change the game for somebody, that's gonna be really exciting and that's gonna make me different. So that's why I went to Meraki. Cool. Talk to us about, um, so you're obviously across a number of different service providers and you're across a number of different customer conversations at the moment. Um, for the IT guy or girl that's listening at the moment, um, can you shed some light on some of the other challenges that are being faced by you know, their peers in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it'd be fair to say that everyone has their own challenges, even Cisco Meraki, right? We've all got things that uh, make it tough in certain situations to be successful. I think that for me personally, in managing different vendor relationships, partner relationships, and other people would probably relate to this, is it's always a, a game of you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. You love working with them, but that might not be the direction you want to go in. And that's something I've had to learn a lot about that honesty is the best policy always. It might not sometimes be the, the truth that they want to hear. Yeah. But I think that that's uh, been a big learning and something that I would take away and tell all of my peers just from the get-go, don't be afraid of hurting someone's feelings when it comes to you know, working together. You have to be honest. You can't hide things. Um, and I think other challenges people have faced over the years really have to do with customer service. We often get so wrapped up in our own product or our own idea of success that we forget what our customer's idea of success is. And Absolutely. at the end of the day, that's all that really matters yeah. to them. So I think that would be actually number one, most important. What about from a technology standpoint? Can you shed some light on what some customers are trying to achieve as a business outcome at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So business outcome, as you said, that's really it. I think that that even in the past few years of me working at Meraki, that's changed a lot because before it was all about just having a network for a network's sake. You needed to keep the lights on. You needed to have something that was going to support all the other work you did to make money. But now it's how is my network going to make me money or save me money or eliminate a risk. So it's all about tying it to the business outcome. And you'll find now that most CIOs aren't your standard CIO that's just a number cruncher or a coder. They're very business-minded people. They're almost like CFOs in their own right. Um, so I think that that conversation has changed a lot and it will continue to evolve because 
it's just kind of like DVD players. I know who talks about DVD players anymore, but for me, this has just been such a, a great way of mirroring how the industry has changed. When DVD players came out, everybody just wanted to play a DVD, right? But now you're not buying a DVD player unless it's doing Pandora, it's doing Facebook, it's doing smart home stuff, it has Blu-ray, all these other things because you need it to do everything. And that's what your network needs to do now. It needs to do everything for you and bring it back in. I think you raise a really, really good point. I mean, we, we, we all know it, but it's, it's really important to drive home. IT used to be that cost center that used to get a smaller budget every year and it was an evil necessity to, mm -hmm. a, to a degree. And you know, I find from a sales end, and interested to hear your thoughts as well, is actually being bought in quite a, a lot earlier into this conversations about, okay, we actually want to innovate here at a business. I, I really want to start to drive consumer engagement because that means that my marketing teams can do X and I'll, I'll actually affect my bottom line. And then bring in the vendors. For us from an agnostic piece, you know, we're bringing people in like yourself to go, this is what we can do at this angle. We might bring Dom, you guys in to say what you can do at that angle. Our conversation is immensely different. You were talking before about CIOs being, you know, coming from you know number crunching backgrounds to much, um, to, to I guess a more commercially astute, yeah. But I think from an IT and from a sales perspective, it's we're now moving away from that, that product, just product piece to almost a, a really high level consulting kind of um, business consulting kind of drive to, to drive the innovation. Would you agree? 100%. We're trusted advisors. We're not salespeople. The day that anybody looks at themselves as just a hardware salesperson is the day that they've missed the mark with their customer, right? It's really about how can I advise them? And sometimes it's advising them that I don't have the solution for them. That happens all the time. So I understand what they want to achieve and I can't do it. So I'm gonna be honest, you know, I don't, the worst thing I could do is take them down a bad path. So I agree, we are advisors and that's what everyone should strive to be with their customers. And I think you raised another good point there from an IT perspective um, around convergence and convergence of hardware and infrastructure and it needs to be able to do multiple things and a device needs to have multiple features that, um, and given the price points of some of these devices now, they, they, they need to be next generational and what they can, can achieve as an outcome. I think gone are the days where, you know, uh, you know, sorry to, I'm not trying to badmouth Cisco, but you know, sell a great box that just does switching or just does routing or, you know, just is an access point. I think, you know, now we're, we're, we've gone into this industry is like, well, how does that improve my application and what else can it do and what else does it talk to and what other databases can I get analytics from it from and to be able to provide insight back to my business, right? So, um, yeah, that convergence piece is, is really high at the moment as well. Is there a piece of tech you're particularly excited about that's not necessarily in the Meraki realm, but just you've seen out, out, in, the, out in the wild that you're interested in following the development of? Yeah, it's... Wow, there are so many, it's kind of bad. I'm addicted to reading about new technologies these days and I get really excited about them and think I should get Bitcoin and like invest or something. And I don't know how to do either of those things, so it's um, <laughs> definitely not doing it. But uh, the first one for me, absolutely, IoT. I know everybody talks about it, but I just think it's so exciting to imagine the ways that that'll change the world for people in medical facilities, for example. Like, yes, it's gonna be great to have my apartment know who I am. I'm gonna love that, don't get me wrong that being able to go into a medical facility and get a scan immediately in the emergency room and be triaged, right? That could save somebody's life. I think that that kind of stuff is amazing and I'm very curious to see how it develops. Also stuff uh, regarding pollution. 
So I'm sure you guys have seen a lot of articles recently um, regarding how they're hoping to clean up the floating plastic island in yeah. the Pacific Ocean. That's been a massive problem for generations and the projections were terrifying of what that was going to do to our oceans, how that would affect so many different ecosystems in different countries, so many millions of people really. And the idea now that leveraging this new technology, that might be a foregone conclusion by the time I have kids, you know, that's pretty wild. So I'm very interested in that kind of stuff. But the list goes on every day that there's a new invention or something new, I get super stoked about it. And I think that's one of the best parts of being in tech is you can always find ways to draw that back into what you're doing and maybe collaborate and get excited about it. Awesome. Um, so it's been an absolute pleasure um, having this conversation with you today. Um, let's, let's use this last couple of minutes to give you a platform to, to sign off on a final message to the audience that would be listening to us today. So anything that you wanted to be able to tell them or share with them, this is, uh, this is your 20 minutes or two minutes of fame that you can have. Well, thank God I was like 20 minutes. <laughs> These poor people have already had to listen to me for almost 30. So thank you all so much for listening. Uh, I think if I had any message to anybody, it would just be to not get caught up into the day-to-day -day of your work. I think that we often look for instant gratification and that's not what your professional life or your personal life should really be about. It's deriving purpose out of what you do and finding ways to make yourself happy in that. So I think if everybody just remembered that, we would all end up successful. That's freaking awesome and a great message for us to sign off on. Thank you so much. Thanks everybody. Thanks. We'll see you next Tuesday. See you next Thank Tuesday. You. Bye.